you look at the world, you try to say, oh, wow, there's so much, so many problems in the world. How do you solve it? And you think about climate, you think about inequality, you think about whatever you pick, you pick the issue conflicts. When you really keep peeling the onion, it's just what's going on in people's heads. It, everything else is almost just a side effect of what's going on in people's heads. And okay, so then we got to change what goes on in people's head, people's heads, or improve or remodel. Well, what does does that? That's called education. Okay, welcome back, or welcome to the Finding Mastery Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Gervais, and I am excited to welcome Sal Khan as our guest on this week's episode. So if you are in school or if you have a kid in school, anytime in the last 14 years, chances are that you recognize Sal's name. He's the founder and CEO of Khan Academy. It's a nonprofit organization on a mission to provide free world-class education for anyone, anywhere. And since their inception in 2008, they have helped hundreds of millions of students around the world through their adaptive online learning platform. I mean, how good is that? Hundreds of millions. Sal has three degrees from MIT, an MBA from Harvard Business School, and most recently founded the Khan Lab School, a nonprofit brick and mortar private school in Mountain View, California. And that is in an effort to bring his vision of mastery-based blended learning system to life. Sal, super excited to sit with you. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Oh, awesome. What a body of work that you bring into this conversation. And I was hoping if we could get into the origin story just a bit, and maybe we can zoom, zoom in by, there was this moment that you shared. It was in 2010, you had recently quit your job as a hedge fund analyst, and then you're at dinner with your wife, and you bump into a couple and they ask, what do you do? Can you tell us the rest of that story? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it, that's kind of like halfway into the origin story. You know, it all started in 2004, tutoring cousins, uh, 2005, 2006. I started making software for them so that they had a chance to practice. 2006 is when I made the first videos. 2009 was frankly where all of the stuff that I had created, including the videos, were now reaching 50 to 100,000 folks. And it felt like there was a there there. And I, you know, my wife and I looked at our finances. She was still in training to become a rheumatologist, but we're like, okay, maybe we could live on savings for, for a year. And that's when I quit my day job. And you can imagine I quit in fall of 2009. And anytime you do anything entrepreneurial, whether for-profit or, or not for-profit, you have to start with a little bit of optimism. Some would say delusional optimism. You think, okay, surely people will support this, or this is going to get off the ground. But like a lot of entrepreneurs or social entrepreneurs, those first few months were really hard. I started getting a lot of rejections. People didn't really know what to make of Khan Academy as a not-for-profit. We looked kind of like a tech startup, but we were not-for-profit and we had the social mission. And I was probably six, seven, eight months into it. It's now early 2010. And, you know, this this um, this, this situation that you're, you're alluding to did happen where I was at a dinner party and I'm sure it probably happened more times that I didn't notice where, um, you know, I remember when I was a hedge fund analyst and people will say, oh, what, what do you do? I'm like, oh, I work at a hedge fund. You could tell there's a little bit like, oh, you know, that, that's a good career and he's probably making good money and all that type of thing. And I remember now um, there was a couple that 
asked each of my wife and I, what do we do? My wife's, you know, training to be a rheumatologist. So what do you do? And I was like, well, you know, I used to be in finance. And before that, I used to be an engineer. I used to work in tech. But, uh, you know, now I, I essentially I quit my job to start this not-for-profit. And I make videos on YouTube. And I'm hacking away at some software. Um, and, and as they were walking away and they thought they were out of my earshot, they said, well, you know, lucky for him, his wife's studying to be a doctor. And... <laughs> <laughs> you know, that hit your <laughs> fragile male ego a little bit, but, oh uh, God. yeah. You know. Yeah. All right. So what was, when you heard that it touched your, you know, ego in, in so many respects, what, what is your response to that? Like, how did you work with that? Well, it wasn't the first time that I knew that people thought that what I was doing was a little bit unusual. Okay. Uh, it, it, there was no, I live out here in Silicon Valley now, and I, I lived out here then. And if I had quit my day job to do a traditional venture back startup, that is risky. And many times that also has its own delusions associated with it. But at least people understood that, that model. Uh, and they knew people who went down that path who did really well. They also knew people who go down that path who don't do so well, but it wouldn't have been hard for people to process. But I think the combination of this being a not-for-profit I think at that time the idea of spending time making YouTube videos as a as a as a as a grown man wasn't legitimized yet. Now it's a very legitimate thing to do, but back in 2009 2010, it wasn't something that you saw people do, especially people who had a who had a family. My my youngest child had just been born, uh, had a very you know, well paying job, prestigious job arguably. So I knew from even from family members there was a lot of discomfort with it, uh, but what gave me confidence and I didn't have consistent confidence it definitely did wane every now and then was I would look at the testimonials from folks I saw how it was growing exponentially I would get these letters from people saying how it had transformed their lives in certain cases I'm like here's there, there is a product market fit here and it does need to have a social mission because I don't want to create a paywall a freemium whatever um, I want these folks to use it and I just have to get into the right philanthropist to see that the social return on investment here is almost unlimited. You know, we're at a new phase of history where the ability to scale and reach and empower millions or tens of millions or hundreds of millions. Back then, I would say these numbers as aspirations. They're now realities, and now we aspire for billions. Um, we're, we're there, and we just have to make a little bit of an investment. Okay, the narrative is tight for you. You've said this a million times. I understand, and I, I do want to understand though how you went from an idea that had some traction, you had obviously some social, not pressure, but um, folks, you're bumping up some social barriers where people are like, that's not going to work out. And you had this deep want to create something with, you know, with social good. So how did you, how did you, maybe this is a mechanical question or it is a psychological, I'm not sure mechanical in the sense that, you know, I let go of the prestigious, prestigious job to be able to start this because I saved a bunch of money and it was rather mechanical. The leap was not very big or it's more psychological, which is like, no, um, I just kept telling myself or I, I kept finding ways that I could kind of slither through this dark, you know, forest of like not knowing how to find the next, you know, I don't know, feeding opportunity because in entrepreneurship, like early days, if you're not doing venture back, it's hard. So it, was this mechanical that you managed the risk-taking or was it more psychological? It was both, but I think it's more psychological. Uh, it early on in the, in the Khan Academy journey, even when 
let's go back to 2004, 2005. I started tutoring my cousins. 2005, I started writing software for them. And that's when I got the domain name Khan Academy. Uh, and I, I started, you know, I was writing software for my cousins. And I said, hey, if, if it's just my cousins who are using it, it's worth doing this. It's helping them. But obviously, as you start writing software, you're like, but maybe people who are not my cousins could use it. But I kept allowing, you know, I kept trying to keep myself from getting too attached to the to the big ambition, just saying, hey, just put one foot in front of the other uh, and, and, and but keep the door open to the big ambition. So I kept I didn't want to close that door either. The other thing that I was doing to protect it was in the late 90s. I had joined uh, two different startups and especially the second one was, you know, it was, it was doing great. And I was counting how much my options would be worth and, you know, what kind of a house would I buy at, you know, the ripe age of 22 and all of these types of things. And then the NASDAQ collapsed. And, you know, for, for me, the hard part of that wasn't even just the, the loss of my, the, the potential wealth <laughs> that I thought I was going to have. But as I saw how um, emotionally toxic it got on the way down, actually, it was a little bit toxic on the way up because people were just counting their eggs before they hatched. But then when the eggs got broken, um, I saw what it was like and how bad it was. And I, it was ironic. I had kind of sworn off entrepreneurship because of that. And then I go to business school. I'm like, I'm going to figure out something else to do. Uh, and I, I find out that I, I like, I like finance and hedge fund. I still get, I kept getting drawn to entrepreneurial adventures. The hedge fund I joined after business school it was my boss and me. So it was still an entrepreneurial adventure of sorts, but it was a different kind. So when I was doing this thing, I was like, this is something that is very personal to me. I used to tell my friends, even when I worked at the hedge fund, that I wanted to work at a hedge fund long enough so that I could start a school on my own terms and be something of a Dumbledore figure. I always imagined that that would be the, the best last third of my life is to be Albus Dumbledore. Uh, and so that was always in the back of my mind. This project seemed like it could be a pathway to becoming a Dumbledore of sorts. And so it says, this is this cannot be a tech startup. This has got to be something that I do with my family. I didn't even know exactly what it meant to be a not-for-profit then. But even before I had quit my job and I would show my friends, hey, I, I've got this hobby. I'm tutoring my cousins. My friends out here in Silicon Valley, their natural inclination is, why are you doing this? And I'm like, oh, because it's helping my cousins. They're like, but how are you going to monetize this? I don't see the business plan. Someone else is already doing it. I'm like, no, 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 this isn't a business. This isn't anything. I'm doing it because it's helping my cousins. And hey, if it helps other people, uh, great. So that was one form of protection. Finding Mastery is brought to you by Bubs Naturals. Like you, I am mindful about what I put into my body. So for me, it usually comes down to ingredients and simplicity. The shorter the list, the better. And that's why I've been loving Bubs Naturals. Bubs creates products with high quality, all natural ingredients that are designed to help us get after the adventures in life. For years, I've been a huge fan of their Hydrate or Die electrolyte mix. I mean, that's a fun title for a product, isn't it? It only has six total ingredients. It's packed with electrolytes. I love the taste. No added sugar, no artificial flavors, none of that stuff. It's great for post-workout recovery. That's when I use it. And I also use it during long periods of travel, which I've been doing a lot lately. And so thank you for the hydration here. And a ton of athletes that I know swear by them too. They're currently in just about every MLB locker room. They work closely with the Red Sox, the Yankees, I know the Rangers, Cardinals, Diamondbacks, and, and many more, of course. I'd love for you to go check them out. I think they're doing a really nice job. Just head to bubsnaturals.com slash findingmastery and enter the code findingmastery at checkout for 20% off your first purchase. Again, that's bubsnaturals, B-U-B-S, 
naturals.com slash finding mastery with the code finding mastery for 20% off your first purchase. Finding mastery is brought to you by hymns. Hymns is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science informed treatments for erectile dysfunction, ED, hair loss, weight loss, and more. Health struggles like ED are common, but they can be hard to talk about when it comes to finding a solution. That's why HIMSS has been a game changer for so many men. The entire process is 100% online, and if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms, no pharmacy visits. Plus, you can manage your plan directly on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. So if you or a loved one has been struggling with ED, I really want to encourage you to go check out Hims. And I know ED often has a psychological component as well. So be sure that you're stacking some psychological best practices into your daily routine as well. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash finding mastery. That's hymns, H-I-M-S dot com slash finding mastery for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash finding mastery. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash EOF for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Did you did you have a, an emotional reaction when you were defending your position? Or was it just like you said it? Was it more matter of fact? I tried to make, I tried my, I wanted my affect to seem like I wasn't phased when people get cynical, but I still get phased. I, you know, I, I, I thought I was hoping you'd say that because Sal from, from a distance, it's like, it's a beautiful story, right? Like it, you've got it all put together. You, you had this idea, you had all of the kind of momentum to go one way. It's the hero's journey. You zigged, you went and zagged, you went another way and it was for social good and you did it. And it's, but it's those small little conversations where people are like, what are you doing? That so many of us, and I recognize in myself, it's like, oh yeah, what am I doing? And then it's, there's, there's the cognitive and there's also the emotional part of it. So how did you do, how did you manage that emotional part when you're fronting one way? No, 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 we're good. It's, it's easy. Like I got this, like it's, it's a side hustle, but really you had something underneath like, holy shit, what am I yeah, doing? You know what I- when I encountered cynics then, and even today when I encounter cynics, the first thing I say is, Sal, don't be defensive. There, there might be something in what they're saying. Like, you don't want to be delusional and ignore good feedback. But at the same time, you also have to remind yourself, like, you don't have to convince this person. <laughs> like, most of the time, you don't, you know, most of these people were not philanthropists. I'm trying to convince they weren't investors. Uh, they weren't potential employees. They were just friends. And we always want to impress our friends and convince them that what we're doing is a good idea, but I don't have to convince them. <laughs> and so that's the first somewhat liberating thing. And then what made me not question myself too much is I said, okay, Sal, what evidence do you have? Yeah, this is a friend who's smart. I respect their opinion, but what evidence do I have? And then I would go back to, it did transform several of my cousin's lives. Um, it I was already getting letters from people who I didn't know around the world about how it had transformed them in some way, shape or form or their children. And I kept going back to that. I was like, look, my well-intentioned friend is probably trying to save me from quote, wasting time or getting distracted, but they haven't 
even tried it out. What, what, you know, they just did classic MBA thinking of like, well, I heard some other company is also making educational videos and is also doing software that creates questions and allows, you know, you're like the 10th person to do this. What makes you so, you know, that's their natural competitive analysis type of thing. I think there is something where there's probably a lot of people who want to do entrepreneurial things. And they almost, when they, when, when they meet a friend who's doing something entrepreneurial, part of their brain wants to help the friend and wants to be constructive for the friend. Part of their brain wants to help their friend. If they think their friend is going down the wrong angle, maybe protecting them from that a little bit. But some of it is also protecting their choices, <laughs> where it's like, I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I've been afraid to. And now my friend is doing it. You know, it's maybe comfortable if I convince him to stop doing it and do what I'm doing again. There was, I think there's sometimes a, a little bit of that. But I think the main thing is just what, just keep reminding yourself, why are you doing it? What gives you confidence? And remembering like, who do you really need to convince and who do you not really have, have, have to convince? Um, and, and, and I think you can, you can keep going. The freedom from that inside alone is remarkable, right? Like I don't have to convince you. I don't have to convince anybody. I do need to have some evidence. I need to have some clarity. And, and if I have those two, which is like, I, I liked how you did convincing and and evidence, you know, as, as part of the, the model there that you, if you can do that, you don't need to respond to everybody's kind of raised eyebrow. Where did you learn that? It probably is a coping mechanism for, for a bunch of things that happens in life. So this wasn't mom, dad, this wasn't your fiance or wife at the time. This was like, it was like on the fly, like, oh, I got to sort this out. I, I think, and I've been described by even some of our early board members is like a pleaser. Like I want people to say, oh, good job. And like, oh, you, and I, I, I mean, I, I, Eric Schmidt used to be on Khan Academy's board. Uh, and this is obviously a little later down the journey once we had more validity and we had funders and all of that. And, and he had asked me to do something. He had, he was, he's on the board of a museum and he's like, oh, there's a fundraiser. And and uh, he'd like me to speak at this fundraiser about education. I was like, oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. And he's like, Sal, I know you want to please me. I know you want, you don't have to do it. I can tell you're a pleaser. You don't have to do it. I was like, no, I definitely want to do it. And I did want to please him. Uh, he was a major funder. He's obviously someone that only a, a year or two ago I had only read, read about, and now he was on my board. So it was, it was a natural inclination. But I think I realized in my life as you, um, it, you're never going to win trying to please everybody. And it's so easy to get into these, like trying to convince people, getting defensive about things. And you just don't feel good about yourself usually after those interactions. And, and so, um, you know, I think our reason, I'm still working on it. I mean, I, 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 I do have a lot of ideas and I do try to share them with people who I really respect. And when they immediately get kind of the devil's advocate position or the cynical side, I do get a little defensive if I'm honest, but I, 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 I've been working on myself as we've been talking about to just say, okay. I don't have to convince them. There's probably some truth in what they're saying. I should process it. Um, and, you know, and it's also some of it's on me. I, I realize that when I get excited about an idea, I go into sell mode almost immediately. Like, this is all the reasons why it's good. Isn't this exciting? And that almost automatically puts people <laughs> into that devil's advocate position. But what about this? What about that? And so now I've realized I, I even try to even introduce ideas where, where I'm showing, I'm going against my stereotype. Where, where I'm showing that, that I'm I'm also looking at the risks and how this could go wrong, but I'm thinking about it still. Oh, so you soften it a little bit. So you don't have that 
mm, initial knee-jerk response to protect you or to make them feel better about their life choices by kind of tearing down your beautiful idea. <laughs> That's right. And look, half the time, yeah. the next morning I wake up, I'm like, yeah, they were kind of right. But sometimes I'm like, no, I still have evidence that, that this is worth, this is worth uh, pursuing. Do you have a time that comes to mind where um, somebody's opinion about what you were doing, you listened to them and didn't listen to yourself and it either went well or didn't go well? Um, I'm thinking about ones that I could share. There's one comes up, but I, I was probably overly sensitive. So I won't, I won't share that one, but let me think mm -hmm. about other. It's sensitive because it's family or it's sensitive because it's a well-known person. Not a well-known person. It's, mm. It was, it was, but it was, it was, it was something at, 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 um, anyway, yeah, I, I won't talk about that one. I'm just trying to think of other, mm -hmm. others where, where I, I didn't follow my conviction and I regret it is what you're, you're really. Either way. Yeah. You know, like, I think that while you're maybe searching for something that it's one of the great constrictors for people is that, you know, the great threat nowadays is not necessarily, um, you know, the dangerous alley while they are, can be dangerous, but, um, it's what people are thinking about you and it's a great threat to belonging. It's a great threat to, you know, be rejected. And so uh, I just have seen it over and over again, that it's a really big deal for folks, but yeah. Well, you know, I, I can give you the one example I was thinking of, but I'll, I'll speak it in generalities yeah, where, cool. mm -hmm. uh, there was someone that, uh, you know, has really helped me and Khan Academy. Um, and, and, and they are actually a well-known figure. And I, I was um, hoping to kind of, you know, do an interview with them and, and things, things like, and, and they've done a lot of really, I thought, good things in education. And uh, when that got word, some people who I'm close to uh, said, oh, no, you can't, you know, that person had, you know, 20 years ago had this view or that view, you can't, you can't do that, Sal. And at, at, and I, my initial reaction, no, but the, this person is like, th that's a public persona that some people might have of this person, but I know this person, like this person has even been something of a mentor to me. This person has, um, has been done nothing but try to help Khan Academy. This person has done some really thoughtful things uh, in, in the education realm. I, I want to do it, but then the pressure to like, no, but Sal, it's a risk for you. You know, Sal, you have this really good public impression that you're, you're above politics, that you're, and, you know, maybe if you do this with this person, it might create something. And I'm like, oh, it just doesn't feel good, but all right, I, I won't do it. And I now regret that. I, 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 I regret not doing it because my convictions were that, you know, this, this person had something to give and I, I shouldn't allow other people's impressions to to kind of control who I'm talking to or who, who what ideas I, I can help surface. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you describe the story, does it still live in your body? Do you still feel it? I, I think the fact that I'm, you know, I'm bringing it up right now. <laughs> and that, mm -hmm. that was the first one that that came yeah. up. Yeah. That's the, you know, in, the, in, the, in, in most of my life, I feel like I've done what I, I have conviction around and, you know, probably to a fault, several family members, probably if you talk to my wife, they would say, you know, once Sal gets an idea in his head, he's going to give it a shot. <laughs> You're not going to dissuade him too easily. And, and that's a, you know, in my personality, that's a, a feature and a bug. Um, 
But this was the only time where, you know, I, I probably took the expedient route and I, and I don't feel good about it. Finding Mastery is brought to you by Apollo Neuro. I am really excited about what Apollo Neuro is building. If you haven't had the chance yet, I highly recommend that you go check out the conversation I had with our co-founder, Dr. David Rabin, on the podcast. It is well worth a listen. Unlike traditional wearables that simply track your biometrics, Apollo is doing it totally differently. Apollo Neuro is designed to actively improve your health by enhancing sleep, relaxation, energy, and focus. So how's it work? Developed by neuroscientists and physicians, Apollo delivers these soothing little vibrations. They call them Apollo vibes that are like music your body can feel. More rapid vibrations help to improve your energy and focus, while the slower vibrations help to promote rest and digest in your body. And the best part for me, they're grounded in good science. Apollo has been tested by thousands of users in clinical and real world trials. I would love for you to give it a go. It's making a meaningful difference in my life. And because you're listening to this podcast, you can receive an exclusive 15% off an Apollo wearable. Just head to apolloneuro.com slash findingmastery and use the code findingmastery at checkout. This is an exclusive offer. It's only for us here at Finding Mastery. So be sure to use the code at checkout. Again, that's Apollo, A-P-O-L-L-O, Apollo Neuro, N-E-U-R-O, apolloneuro.com slash findingmastery or use the code findingmastery at checkout for 15% off your purchase. Finding Mastery is brought to you by Cured. If there's one big rock to get into the container when it comes to dialing in your wellness, one thing that stands out among the rest is sleep. Whether it be improved physical health, mental health, performance, creativity, quality sleep is the gift that keeps on giving. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with the science that supports that. And if you're struggling with sleep or you just want to dial it in a bit further, Cured's Zen formula it just might be a great solution for you. Zen is a nootropic that is formulated by Cure's very own in-house clinical herbalist, and it contains a blend of reishi mushroom, ashwagandha, chamomile, passionflower, and broad-spectrum CBD. That is a powerhouse combination. Zen could be a great little addition to your bedtime routine. They recommend taking it about 45 minutes before hopping into bed to let the reishi and ashwagandha and chamomile and the CBD do their thing. So right now, because you're listening to this podcast, Cured is hooking you up with a great offer. You can try Zen for 20% off when you visit curednutrition.com slash findingmastery and you use the code findingmastery at checkout. That's Cured, C-U-R-E-D, Cured, nutrition.com slash findingmastery and enter the code findingmastery at checkout to save 20%. Regret you know, is a, is a really powerful thing. It can be a great teacher. It can also be a poison that we keep, you know, swallowing. Um, it feels like to me that you work mostly in your head, but then when I, when I was doing my research about kind of who you are, you, the way that you've put together words about the vision that you hold, it feels like it's heart, like it's about, there's a soul and a spirit to it. Um, how does it feel? What does it feel like to be inside you? Does it, feel like you're like kind of this 
big toddler, you know, like this huge brain and uh, not really connected to the emotions? Or is it is it more balanced? Is it more heart led and you just happen to have a big, you know, cognitive motor as well? It's a good question. I've never had that question before. Um, I'd like to think it's 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 definitely both here. Uh, you know, even going back to the the things of how I protected Khan Academy as an idea and how I was able to stay it. You know, the other thing is, yes, I mean, you mentioned like, did I save up enough money? Like, just mechanically, did I do it? Yeah, and that's a head thing. And and I was an analyst at a hedge fund. I wasn't a hedge fund manager, so I was able to save up some money. We were trying to you know, essentially. A healthy down payment for a house in Silicon Valley. <laughs> it was essentially what we were saving it up for, uh, you know. So I think several hundreds of thousands of dollars. So it's yeah, decent right. money, but not like yeah, sure. not like independently wealthy money. And uh, 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 and so that's what my wife and I said. Okay, but you know maybe we can live off of it. We we don't have big expenses. Our expenses, even with my mother in law, had just moved in with us, and and our first son was born. But we 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 lived. You know, both my wife and I grew up quite uh, poor. So we, we know how to, we know how to economize. So we, we, we didn't have a lot of expenses. Um, that was a mechanical thing. But then I also told myself, cause even more than the living off of it was the, the career or the opportunity cost of the career not had, because as you can imagine in a hedge fund, every year you can make every year, your, your, your income is accelerating. And in you know five or six years, I could be making what my boss was making, which is, which, which could have been in the millions of dollars every year. And that's a real big opportunity cost to give up for something that's that's unproven. And there, that's where a little bit of the heart came in, where I just told myself, like, well, what is the life that you want, Sal? And the life that I want is healthy, happy family. But I really told myself, if if I had a nice 2,000 square foot house, which, which was the house that we were renting and we later were able to buy, 2,000 square foot, four bedroom house, you know, two, two cars in the driveway, my you know, a healthy and happy family. We're able to go on vacations, go to restaurants every now and then. Uh, I'm able to support my kids through college. Um, that's all I want financially, really. And if I'm able to then also get to work on something that I, every morning I wake up and I'm inspired to work on it, I get to work on an interesting problem and I feel like I have a sense of purpose, I consider myself the luckiest person on the planet. And I, I wasn't, I'm not saying this now just to sound, you know, any, any, anything. I, that's literally what I told myself. I'm like, if you are able to have that lifestyle, that's a really good life. And so that liberated me a little bit from the, the golden handcuffs of going down. And I liked my hedge fund job. It's not like I, I was, I hated it. And I was trying to figure out a new thing to do. I liked it. It was a good job. Uh, and very renewed. I can never say the word renewative. renewative. <laughs> it paid you a lot of money. Well. It paid well, um, <laughs> yeah. but, but, uh, uh, but that goes back to the heart aspect of it. Like a lot of times when I'm making some of these decisions, like even what Khan Academy should be, I do go a little bit into what inspires me. You know, we have one life to live. If you have a shot of being able to live your life as a protagonist in a movie, live your life as a protagonist in a science fiction book, go for it. Like, you know, so, so uh, I remember even, in the early days, there were a lot of several VCs who reached out and want angel investors who wanted to write a check and have Khan Academy be a for-profit. And it was tempting. But then when we started talking about monetization and how you're going to exit and all that, I was like, oh, this isn't what I want to do. I want to. And then I thought about what, what is a home run as a for-profit? And then what's a home run as a not-for-profit? Home run as a for-profit. We all know those stories quite well. But I was also thinking, well, what's it going to, how's that going to change the world? And how's that going to change me? 
And then I thought about how for a, a home run is a not-for-profit. I'm like, what if Khan Academy can be the next Smithsonian, the next Oxford, or the next whatever, or, or in some ways bigger than all of those? Because even in 2009, when I was thinking about these things, Khan Academy already had bigger reach than some of these hundreds of year old institutions. And we were, there's no reason why we couldn't grow another hundredfold or another thousandfold from there. So for me, it was like, wow, maybe it's worth swinging for the the even higher fence of, of, of the, and that's a hard thing. Like that's not a, then the head kicks in and says, okay, is that at all reasonable? Is that all? And it's like, as, as ridiculous as it sounds, it isn't unreasonable. If you just extrapolate the growth, if you just look at what internet technologies allow us to do, if you just think about the scale of other people on the internet, for the most part, for profits, you know, Google scale would have seemed like science fiction 30 years ago for what it does, uh, but it's not. And so couldn't Khan Academy be that same thing, but as a, as a social institution? And when you ask yourself the question, what do you want with your life? Is that like, was that a flashbang? Like it just, it, it became apparent? Or did you like wrestle with that for a period of time? Did you write it down? Did you bounce it off of other people? Did you, did you meditate and listen? Like, what was your process? Cause it's such a powerful question and look where it led you to, to make all of those choices along the way to stay nonprofit, to have clarity and purpose each day that you wake up to make the hard decisions, you know, along the way of entrepreneurship. Like, so how did you, what was your process to, to answer the question? How do you want to live your life? It was mostly internal. I, I didn't talk to a lot of people externally. I, you know, I, if I'm open, I'm, I'm not usually very open, <laughs> like with friends and things like that. Like, um, but I did, oh, I did. That's talk. interesting. I, yeah, that's interesting. I, well, I would say that I'm, I, I am more open than most people, but, but I, 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 I've realized going back to our earlier conversation that I've realized that there's certain contexts where you, you're gut this type of conversation is going to be welcomed. <laughs> There's other conversations where, you know, so when I'm talking to my friend who's talking about how are you going to monetize this, he's not going to be in a headspace where I'm like, well, what do you really want out of your life? And what do I really want in my life? And do I, do I need his approval to, for me to be able to do it? Now, I did talk about this with my wife and I, I kind of do need her approval because <laughs> this isn't how do I want to live my life. It's how do we want to live our life? Uh, so I, I did need her approval for this. And say, hey, you know, I think we're very fortunate. And, and she agrees, because I think, you know, for both of us, she grew up sharing a room with four people, sharing a bed, in many cases, with three or four people. I, you know, we both grew up below the poverty line. For us to have, even at that state, you know, we were in our early 30s, a four-bedroom house in a nice neighborhood. We had two cars. We had, we were on a track to have, I was already had a job, you know, we were not, we had paid off our debt already and it was significant debt. <laughs> like we had paid off our debt. Um, we felt like we were living the dream and we were living the dream. Our first child was born. He, you know, he, he, well, he, he had, you know, knock on wood, he's outgrown it, but he had childhood epilepsy and that there's a way of putting your life in focus when you realize that you really don't give a crap about anything else, as long as your son can stop having seizures, because that just freaks you out every time it happens and it has all sorts of implications. I think that type of thing wakes you up about, about, about what's, what's important in life. Oh man. I'm so stoked that you shared that because it helps to deep, it helps to give some contour to the depth that you have. Like these were not, this was not a 20 some year old making, making the hard choice in Silicon Valley, you know, and kind of pushing against that. That was, this was like 
you understood what it's like to not have maybe food. You understood the the hardships of not having anything. And then you and then from that place, you even had a deeper hardship, which is like your son being sick or having a, you know, an illness. I don't, I don't know what the technical term is for epilepsy. Um, yeah, dude. I, okay. That, that matters in your, in me understanding you and maybe above all the way that you said, I worked it out with my wife. People ask me all the time about like, what, what's the common threads for best in the world or whatever. And what I've started to realize is like when I reflect on just my life, not their life, but my life, I go, you know, I wouldn't be the person I am without a great partner. And I met my wife really early. You know, we, we, we met super early. We've been married like 30 some years. And so I think what you're saying is not talked about enough. So can what is your wife's name? If you don't mind. Umama. Mama. Umama. U-M-A-M-A. Yeah. Umama. Umama. And so how do you do that with Umama? How do you sit down and say, what do you want our life to look like? Is that basically the essence of the question? Yeah. And, you know, we had obviously talked about it before. And, uh, you know, I, I have this fun theory I talk about. I, I still talk about it with the Khan Academy team members that I feel like I've had so many blessings in my life that, you know, benevolent aliens are helping me and Khan Academy prepare humanity for first contact. Uh, because I, I remember we we rented this house as soon as our son was born. And now we have three children, but as soon as our first child was born, mother-in-law comes and moves in with us to help out. And um, we needed to rent a house. We find a house for rent. And it was like the perfect house. Uh, and it was the last one we looked at. And it was like the price, you know, honestly, the, the landlord at the time was charging us below market. It was in our budget. We're like, oh, this is great. Like, is, this is, seems too good to be true. And then I remember once we stayed there, both myself and my wife, we were like, oh, only could one day have a house like this. Like mm. it's great that we're renting it, but we don't want to get used to this because this is so nice. I and mean, we just moved out of a two-bedroom apartment. This was a four-bedroom house. It was so nice. And it had a really nice garden. And my my wife loves gardening. And it, it was really interesting. The um about a about a year later, the, the landlord calls and says, Hey, um, I'm sorry to do this to you, but I'm gonna put the house for sale. So we're going to have to cancel the lease. And I'm like, oh my God, this is our dream house. We want to buy this house. And it, it was ironic because um, I, I had quit my day job. I didn't have a job. I had a down payment, but I didn't have a job. And then and then, literally the next call after that was from this, this group that wanted me to consult for them a little bit. Um, and, and I was like, I'm happy to do this if you can kind of help you know, talk to the, talk to the loan officers about, about this. And, and I, we were, we were able to, to get a mortgage. And it was funny as, as, as we started paying out, paying down the mortgage, you know, first the down payment, I used to joke with my, my wife. I used to like, we used to go out and look at, look at the house. And, um, you know, when we paid off 30% of the house, I would say, all of this is ours. And I would point to 30% of the property. And I was like, oh, we're still working on it, but all of this is ours. Um, we got the big tree and the garage. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm going to make a payment now and we're going to get another stone. And, um, but, you know, I, I think, look, what, one of the things that obviously why we, I think, get along really well together is that we have a, a very similar upbringing. We are very uh, grateful for the things that we have. And, um, yeah, I think there was a, a joint recognition that we're really fortunate if we have our health. You know, we, we, my wife and I still feel like we're getting away with something if we buy like full priced organic blueberries. We're like, okay, life is feeling a little bit too good right now that we're just blowing money on blueberries. 
You know, <laughs> I still feel imposter syndrome when I go to a Whole Foods. Like, Dude. I'm like, can people tell that I, you know, or Nordstrom's? Like, I feel serious imposter syndrome at Nordstrom's. Like, you know, uh, like, is it okay if I can still look at the price tags? Is that, is that tacky? <laughs> like, I'm, I'm hanging out at the sale rack. <laughs> oh, that is so good. All right. So I, I don't know your economic kind of, you know, profile here. So it, that's not the question. The question though is how do you work with, it doesn't matter if you can't afford the suit or the shoes. That's not, that's not what the issue is. Well, the now issue I, is I mean, you know, I, I, I'm, yeah. I'm very fairly, um, frankly, more than I, I expected when I quit, first quit my job. Um, but you know, some of that conditioning from your youth is still there is the point. Finding Mastery is brought to you by AG1. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know what a big supporter I am of AG1. And it's almost been for a decade now. So I love what they're doing. I, it's something I drink just about every day. And part of their marketing slogan is that it's a nutritional insurance program. And like, I just, I love that. That's the way it feels for me. And that's because each serving of AG1 delivers a dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and so much more. It is a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. I like to take it first thing in the morning, which is also recommended for optimal nutrient absorption. So what I do is I just fill up my shaker, add some cold water, a scoop of AG1, and a little squeeze of lemon. I shake it up, and I'm ready to go. Or if I'm in a rush or you know I'm, I'm ripping and running on the road, I just grab an AG1 travel pack to take with me. I feel great after drinking it, not only because of the nutritional insurance idea, but there's just a, there's a sustenance that happens when I drink it. And I love recommending it to friends and family because I know AG1 is formulated with science-informed rigor and the highest quality in mind. AG1 is a supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily. And that's why I've loved partnering with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, I want to encourage you to give AG1 a try and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2, and also get five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash findingmastery. Again, that's drinkag1.com slash findingmastery. Finding Mastery is brought to you by AquaTrue. We all know how important hydration is to performance and recovery and well-being. But it's not just about how much you drink. The quality of your water plays a big role. And if you're like me and you don't fully trust tap water, and I think for good reason, research by the Environmental Working Group has shown that three out of four homes in the U.S. have harmful contaminants in tap water. That's why I'm really excited to introduce AquaTrue. Their purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters. It's incredible. I can literally taste the difference in my water. Plus the filters are affordable and long lasting. Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water. That adds up to less than three cents per bottle. It feels great to know that all at once I'm saving money, getting the highest quality water for the Finding Mastery team, and helping make a positive impact on the environment by eliminating single-use plastics all the way around. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, and it even makes a great gift. And right now, because you're a Finding Mastery listener, you receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. 
So just go to aquatrue.com. You spell it A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com and enter the code FINDINGMASTERY at checkout. Again, that's aquatrue.com. Enter the Finding Mastery code at checkout to receive 20% off any purifier that you buy there. So how do you work with that imposter syndrome? What what do you do? Do you laugh at it? Like, look at me? Or uh, you, you, have the, you have a great laugh. And I think that that takes quite a bit of intensity off. And you've used the word twice, at least, about being liberated, you know? And so I think your laugh is also liberating. But what do you do in those moments where you're feeling like, like, like I'm going to be found out here? Yeah, and I'm making me self-conscious about, about my laugh, but I'm, I guess <laughs> me positive so no, I keep laughing. Good. No, you know, look, honestly, I think, I think some, of that, some of that imposter syndrome, I actively want to retain. Uh, it, I see. It, uh, you I know, see. I, I never want to forget how like there, there there was a time not too long ago that i would pass on the organic produce uh because it was twice even still still sometimes today it, it is but it, it, i i and i i because by retaining it you appreciate the the fact that wow i i can go to a restaurant these days and for the most part order what i want on the menu and not care too much about the price although once again my conditioning is still there um, so I think it lets you just appreciate the world a little bit. I and mean, we all know about the hedonic hedonic adaptation and the hedonic treadmill. You get used to the level you're at. And then all of a sudden, and look, <laughs> I don't claim that I'm immune to that. I don't want to sound like I'm some guru here. I live in Silicon Valley and, you know, we still live in that same house. Uh, and a lot of our friends have now moved into houses that are multiples of the size of our houses. And, and every now and then it's, 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 you know, you, you go there, it's like, hey, maybe it would be nice to have two saunas in the house or to have a, have a six bedroom or, you know, yeah, have a right, yeah. four car garage or whatever. But like, um, I, I always remind myself, you know, like, oh, well, imagine their electricity bill or like the gardening bill or the water bill, or, you know, whatever. But um, yeah, I, I think it's, 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 I, I think there's healthy imposter syndrome and then there's unhealthy imposter syndrome. Okay. A healthy okay. one keeps you grounded, allows you to enjoy it a little bit. Like, look at this. Every now and then I get invited to, um, uh, let's say, uh, meetings with people or, or conferences with people where both healthy and unhealthy imposter syndrome could be at play. The healthy imposter syndrome says like, wow, you get to meet your childhood hero or someone that you thought that you could only read books about and you're meeting this person and they're like interested in what you have to say and they're supporting Khan Academy. That's kind of a fun I don't know if that's imposter syndrome or that's just remembering yourself when you're younger and you're like, wow, how is little Sal in this meeting right now? That's that's kind of wild. The little, the less healthy imposter syndrome is that if that if that goes to an extreme where like let's say there's having there, there's a discussion and like who am I to say something? Does, does do I do I, should I, should I contribute? And I try to there I try to um, remind myself that everyone here is, is literally just a person, like everyone here, and and that's another. I guess, you know, coping mechanism. Sometimes I just remind, I just try to treat everyone as if they're my childhood friend. And there's something of a self-fulfilling prophecy there. It's like, you know, it's respectful, but even some, some people who have been great supporters of Khan Academy, their, their household names, I've always said, Hey, I'm going to treat them as my friend. And I think they appreciate it too, because so many other people treat them with such reverence and I, and I respect them a ton, but I, I, I get to joke around with them a little bit. And that's how I deal with that other potential imposter syndrome. I love that. That, that is, I've never, I've never heard anyone say anything like that. And here, just last week I was in Europe and 
there was a team that I was working with that they're responsible for their company for 50 billion. And it's a small team of 12 people. That's a big number, as you know. And, and so there was a moment in our discussion and I just looked around the room and I said, anyone here have um, imposter syndrome? <laughs> they all raised their hand. And these are some of the hardest chargers in business, you know, for this division. And so I just really appreciate that you're saying it's a scale. And one, one way to inoculate the imposter syndrome is to treat people like your childhood friend. Mm-hmm. That's cool, dude. And, and so can I read this back to you and, and tell me what you think? It's a quote of yours. If sure. you believe in trying to make the best of the finite number of years we have on this planet while not making anyone worse, think that pride and self-righteousness are the cause of most conflict and negativity and are humbled by the vastness and mystery of the universe, then I'm the same religion as you. So where, what does that mean to you? Yeah, I'm surprised you were able to dig that. You know, that's something I wrote a very, very, very long time ago because when Khan Academy was just trying to get on the radar and we were getting a lot of press, you know, it's just these things, the internet's an interesting place where, um, you know, my name, I, was, I grew up in a Muslim family and there started to be these debates online about like, is Salah Muslim? How Muslim is he? Et cetera, et cetera. And that was my response. <laughs> <laughs> that was like it's it's a you know I I I I have a lot of pride and um, connection to my upbringing to my culture, but I would say it's not even just me. My family has always been a little bit of beating to their own drum within that context. Um, you know, when my uh, grand my grandfather on my mother's side was a poet, and when he died at his funeral, his wake, you know, we had a we had a, a Muslim mullah, we had a rabbi, we had a, 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 a Hindu pundit there. Um, and it was because my grandfather was very, you know, universalist in, in a lot of his views. And like, this happened when I was a teenager. So this wasn't my influence. So I think I, I come from a family that, you know, we definitely grew up in, in, a, in a certain tradition, whether it's, you know, we're Bengali ethnicity, ethnically. And so I think Bengalis are very proud of their Bengali culture that transcends whether you're Hindu or Muslim, roughly half of Bengalis in the world are Muslim, half of them are Hindu, but the Bengaliness oftentimes transcends the religion there. So I think my family has that. And then, you know, I grew up in a context there in New Orleans where it's, it was just a very diverse group of, you know, we, we mixed with everyone. And, um, you know, that's kind of how I form my, my worldview today. How would your parents or family members describe you as a kid? Would they have said anything close to like, oh, Sal's going to do something? Like, did you have that thing early on? Um, or is this, were you a little bit of a sleeper? And people are like, you know, I, I, you kind of always had something, but we weren't quite sure. Like, how would they describe <laughs> How would they describe you? You would have gotten different responses from different people at different, <laughs> at different times. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think there was definitely, a, a, I, I, I've said this openly before, my, my, my sister was the was the golden child in, in a lot of ways and like, all, you know, academically and, you know, and she, 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 it, she really did um, clear the path for me for a lot of teachers where, you know, when I entered third or fourth grade, I was Farah's brother. And so people projected expectations, which were for the most part, good, like, oh, you're going to be a good student, or maybe we should test you for the gifted program or you should, because I don't, I, but I, because it wasn't obvious without that, that it would have happened in second grade, I was in speech therapy. I couldn't speak properly. 
uh, while my sister, you know, so you don't normally take the kid in speech therapy. So maybe you should test him for the gifted program. <laughs> it was because I was Farah's brother that, that, uh, that they did that. Yeah. Um, so, so uh, you know, there, there was always in, in my family, I think if you ask my, my mom or some of my uncles when, you know, let's say I was uh, 10 or 11 years old and my sister was a teenager, they're like, okay, Farah, Sal, we're not so sure about. He seems to like to goof off, watch a lot of TV. He's always drawing. That was kind of the stereotype. I was kind of a up to no good a lot, like in an innocent way um, as, a, as a young kid. Uh, I, had, I had not great conduct grades in school uh, in certain classes. Uh, so, you know, but I did have a few teachers that I think even at an early age, I'd like to think they at least made me believe that they saw something in me and, and, and that helped um, uh, uh, help, help give me, help give me some confidence. But then obviously when you, when you, when you start getting into, I mean, it's interesting in high school was probably the low point of some, some people's impressions of me, um, where they might've thought that I was getting in with the wrong crowd and this and that, and not showing, uh, but, but then, you know, by the end of high school and, and college, people probably started saying, oh, you know. I, interestingly, I think they would have thought that I, I would have gone a very, um, aggressively for-profit route. I think what most people would have thought, like if anyone is going to try to become on the, you know, uh, you know, the top 10, you know, uh, Fortune 500, Forbes 500 or something, Sal's going to try to do that. And and obviously all the way until I was working at the hedge fund, it seemed like I I was one of, was, was going on that path. Uh, so I probably had a little bit of that stereotype. Well, I mean, Sal though, honestly, three degrees from MIT, what, what, what happened? Like why 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 three degrees from MIT? Oh well, you know this is um, I I think what what happened when I went to MIT first of all MIT was like heaven for me. Mm. Um, I, I think when you are in high school in a in a fairly mainstream high school, um, you 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 have to suppress certain instincts. You have to suppress how much you get excited about learning certain things. Um, so you don't get beat up, <laughs> so you don't get ostracized. And, and I had, you know, I had found my people, I was on, you know, in high school, sometimes I was on the, I was on the state math team and we would go to, you know, compete in national tournaments. So I'd kind of found some, some, some other young people um, in the state who I could really, you know, be myself with, so to speak. But then to go to MIT and to have a whole community of people like that, um, I felt like I was in like, Hogwarts or Disney, whatever, whatever metaphor you want to draw to it. And then once I was there, I, um, you know, I learned that they, they actually allow you to take as many classes as you want to take. Uh, and they don't recommend you take more than four or five, but there was a certain element of like, you know, I'm a kid in a candy shop and you pay a fixed amount of tuition and you can get, take as many classes as you want. And so I, I thought, well, this is like, you know, it's an all you can eat buffet. <laughs> let me, let me see how much food I can Look eat. Look at that. Look, so you're, <laughs> the way you lived actually set up your philosophy for Khan Academy, where, I mean, in men, in some respects, because obviously you had to pay a lot or you had a donor that paid for you or there was academic scholarship or, or whatever, but it was like the buffet approach and you know, that sets up mastery learning for you. Okay. So it's starting to draw a couple, a couple parallels um, to pull on, but why teaching? Why, why learning? Why in, what is it about that, that you wanted to dedicate your life? And I do want to get into mastery learning and I do want to get into what makes a great online educational experience, but first let's start. Why learning? Why teaching? I think there's a couple of threads here. Uh, I, I think one, I've always enjoyed it. Uh, 
multiple times in my life, either informally, even when I was very young, I found that one, I had a knack for it in a lot of cases where a classmate might be struggling understanding what's in a textbook or a teach they had trouble understanding what the teacher said. And I'm like, oh, this is how I think about it. And my friend would be like, oh man, that's so cool. Yeah, that makes all the sense in the world. I'm like, oh, I guess I have a knack for this thing. So that kind of built confidence in my ability to, to do that. And then I think that led me in high school, especially, uh, I was the president of the math clubs called Mualpha Theta. It was like a math honor society. Um, and one of the things we did is math tutoring. And we created like, I would say such a legitimate program that the school then made it a formal part of the school. It made anyone who, who had a below a certain grade in any of their math classes go to this math tutoring that I was essentially running with a bunch of other, with 20 or 30 other students who are in this club. And I saw time and time again, a lot of students who were struggling, barely passing a course, thought they hated math. If they just had the opportunity, the incentive to fill in gaps, had things explained to them the right way, chance to practice. And that's all about mastery learning, opportunity incentive to fill in any gaps, to, to, to finish in any unfinished learning, so to speak. They were off to the races. Some of them joined the Math Honor Society. Kids that you thought, you know, a month ago were about to fail their algebra class were now going to math competitions with us because they started to get excited about it. So that also gave me confidence. The other thread is I think every young person who's even vaguely idealistic, and I think this is all young people, I think, try to be somewhat idealistic. You look at the world, you try to say, oh, wow, there's so much, so many problems in the world. How do you solve it? And you think about it climate, you think about inequality, you think about whatever, you pick you pick the issue, conflicts. When you really keep peeling the onion, it's just what's going on in people's heads. It, everything else is almost just a side effect of what's going on in people's heads. And okay, so then we got to change what goes on in people head, people's heads or improve or remodel. Well, what does, does that? That's called education. And um, so you know, my head told me that education is the single highest leverage point. Like if you can try to cure cancer, which by itself is a very strong leverage point. I encourage people who are inclined to, to try to cure cancer. But what if you can educate a million people and some subset of them can then go on and help cure cancer. And then some of them will solve this and that. And some of them will create the next this and that and write the next great novel. That's even a higher point of leverage. Uh, so that's what, you know, th those two threads of, I felt like I had a knack for it, a huge high leverage point. Um, yeah, and 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 it felt like uh, there were um, opportunities to to do it in better ways. Uh, kept kept pulling me into it. What do you think? This is like a state of the union question. What do you think the state of the union is for the education system today? And you know, I don't know if you're going to get into this part, but there's like the maybe let's bifurcate it into the um, uh, college system as well as the K through twelve system. I, I can, well, I think there's two lenses to take. If I, okay. if I compare the state of the union of education in either case to say what it was 250 years ago, it's awesome. <laughs> 250 years ago, uh, you know, even in more literate countries, 30, 40% of the, of the, of the population was functionally illiterate, free public school, or at least a high quality public school was not a mainstream thing. You know, as, as recent as even you know, 30 or 40, 50 years ago, obviously, because of things like like segregation, et cetera, even in places like the US, you did not have respectable access to education. Uh, I, I think it's still not perfect and there's still a lot of inequality, but for the most, you know, literacy rates are much, much better than they were for most of human history, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot that 
a lot of good in the world. And, and even in the last 10 years, as I've been on this journey, 15 years, things like access to technology, to the internet, to, to high quality instructional materials, et cetera, that's all actually gotten better even in the last 15 years. Um, the, the stuff that's still really weak is even in affluent neighborhoods or fancy prep schools, you still have a model where a lot of kids are still falling through the cracks. And those are the places where they're not resource constrained. Imagine the places where they are resource constrained. I mean, there's still schools, my school in Metairie, which is a su suburb of New Orleans, it, it, it was pretty mainstream. It wasn't like a gold-plated school by any stretch of the imagination. It was a normal Louisiana public school. But there, I remember even when I was growing up, there were schools in New Orleans in kind of the urban core of New Orleans that didn't have air conditioning. And you can imagine not having air conditioning in New Orleans. Like that's that's unusual. That, that's harsh. So um, imagine, you know, so some of the fancy schools, kids are still falling cracks. Imagine those schools without air conditioning. But let's just assume that you have all the resources, but the model of education that's there where it's not mastery based, kids are moved ahead at a fixed pace. They cover some material, they get a test. Some kids get 100 on it. Some kids get a 90. Some kids get a 70 on it. Even though that student didn't know 30% of the material that happened to be on the test, the whole class will move on to the next concept and then build on those gaps. And then the next concepts are gonna be that much harder to learn. And then those gaps just keep accumulating. And at some point kids hit a wall and they also, it hits their self-esteem. They're not able to move any, any further. And this isn't theoretical. You just look at the, you can look at the graduates of a fancy prep school that's happening and it's definitely happening on a nationwide basis. So I think that is the biggest problem. If I think nationwide, roughly, 60% uh, of all kids who go to the two-year college system and about a, a third to a fourth of the kids who go into the four-year college system. So these are the kids who graduate from high school and they're in the top, they're the half who decide to keep going. Roughly a good chunk of them, always, almost a majority, when they get to college, the colleges say, wait, you have so many gaps in your learning. You're not even ready to learn algebra yet. Even though algebra is a ninth grade course, you have to go back to, 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 to middle school. That's happening for a majority of the kids who try to go to college. So that seems broken to me. You go into uh, higher education, American higher education, you know, a lot of people say it's the envy of the world. And it is true. The research that we have is, you know, the, the best in the world. And the facilities, American universities are, they have very nice facilities and they have very, very nice programs. The problem with them is they're very expensive and they're very, partially because of the landscaping and the facilities and the programs that they have. Um, and they are, they, they can not always, but they can sometimes be rigid. I've always said like, what's magical about four years, whether you're going to be a software engineer or a, an art historian, it's always four years. Like it's to, like, clearly no one has said like, let me just work on the stuff that you need to learn and not just to learn to be that career, but like learn to be a human being or participate in democracy, et cetera. So I, I think, I think, and you know, the opportunity cost isn't just in dollars, although those are significant. It's also in lost time. The fact that in the U S to become a you know, a working doctor, and I observed this with my wife, and she's not even one of the, she, she didn't become a surgeon where you have to keep going. But even as a rheumatologist, you know, she wasn't, she she was 32 before she was really a rheumatologist, and she never took a break, but from kindergarten until she was, that opportunity cost is also significant, and you're losing a lot of talent, and you're probably losing a lot of a talent that could help serve a more diverse community, because they were the ones that said, hey, wait, I got to get a job fast. I can't sit in school until I'm 32 years old uh, or 35 years old to become a, a surgeon or a professor or whatever else. So I think those those are the those are the problems uh, that, that I, I think need, need, need to address. When it comes to the university system, what are we paying for now? Are we paying for a brand? 
Are we paying for a community? Are we paying for knowledge? Because you can get Khan Academy as you know, point point example. You can get free you can get free learning or low cost learning in that is really good. What do you think we're paying for at the university level? You know, it's I, crazy. My, my my kids at a at a, kid, a college or I'm sorry at a high school right now that it's like parents are crazy right now. Uh, well, they always have been, but I'm just I'm new to it. And so, what what are we paying for? Yeah, and actually, before I answer that, you, you made me realize the other problem is just the chronic stress and anxiety and mental health issues that are going on. I actually think our system is culturally broken in a lot of ways. I mean, there's always been. I mean, you read Lord of the Flies in middle school and. I remember reading in middle school, I'm like, okay, yeah, you just described like the locker room to me. Like yeah, the, pl- that, the playground, the yeah. playground that is Lord of the Flies. Like, it's like, you know, bully or be bullied or, you know, it's like you're, you're that, that, that is a lot, a lot of times, unfortunately, the, 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 the culture. And then as you get into, and in many cases, it's even more, it happens more at some of the more affluent neighborhoods, the, the stress and anxiety, you know, here in Silicon Valley, some of the local high schools, Palo Alto high school, gun high school, I, I can't afford to live in those neighborhoods that, that go into those high schools. Uh, they have the highest suicide rates in the country. Um, the, the, I talked to educators there, the stress, the anxiety, the depression there is off the charts. So that's another thing. And we talked to anyone in higher education, roughly a third of all students are in some way dealing with some of these things. So anyway, there, there's that. And um, to, 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 your, to your point about like, what are you paying for? I've always said, you know, universities, recent, they, they study everything except some very obvious questions like what you just asked. What are you paying for? And you can conduct a very simple study here. Go to you know, this upcoming Harvard graduation and go to some kids who have some debt, you know, and say, hey, hey, graduate, I will pay your $200,000 right now, whatever debt, however much debt you have, you know. But and you get you get to keep all the knowledge you got from Harvard and all of the experiences, but you can never tell anyone again that you went to Harvard University. Will you take it? I'm guessing mm. very few people will. Mm. On the other hand, if I were to go to um, a lot of people and I say, you can pay two hundred thousand dollars right now. And the whole world will think that you have gone to Harvard <laughs> for the rest of your life. And there's no way of disproving it. I think but a you lot have of no people, new knowledge. Yeah. A lot of people will take that, take, take you up on that. Um, mm. So I think that tells you something about what, what people might be paying for. Um, I, but I think there's other things like, hey, I, I'll pay you $200,000, but all your memories of like the great conversations and the friendships, those are going to go away. I think that also would be hard for, for, for people to, um, yeah. to take, uh, to take. And look, I think the knowledge of course matters as well, but I, 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 I do think the credential and the brand and the halo is a big, big, big piece of it because it, it's, you absolutely can learn some of the, 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 the more tangible skills for sure at a lower cost alternative, or even online in many cases, not always. Um, and the experiential, maybe the less tangible skills you also could learn through, you know, some people say, oh, well, it's just an important coming of age experience. Uh, you learn how to learn. And I'm like, I don't disagree with that. That happened to me in college. I had a great college experience. I had the best friends, of, some of the best friends of my life. I met my wife in college, but um, I could imagine other coming of age experiences that are just as powerful. The military is one. I could imagine traveling through Europe with 
a cohort of students while we get jobs and while we do online learning at the same time, that could be a pretty cool coming of age experience. I imagine doing internships and co-ops the entire time while I'm I'm learning, whether it's in person or online and getting work experience. And if, I, if I'm able to have a cohort of people my own age, that could be a great coming of age experience. So, um, and you know, a, a not so great coming of age experience that I've seen happen, including people in my own family is you have this great experience and then you hit reality. And then you're 21 years old, you're no longer living on the well-groomed country club <laughs> of the fancy university you attended, you have $200,000 of debt or more, and um, you realize that, you know, when you're in that economic seminar at the Ivy League school and they treat you like you're going to be the Federal Reserve chairman, um, that's not how the world is treating you now. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're having trouble getting that job in economics mm -hmm. or if you are it's it's not paying you enough to pontificate about interest rates um and, and things like that so so you know i think we have to think a little bit more holistically outside of even just those four years so why why did you build a brick and mortar school you're making such a massive difference across the planet and be, before one more question about before we move on to that is that is this more flattering is that there's a professional surfer and a family that I was spending some time with. It was about eight years ago. And um, they just had their newborn. I said, you know, what, what are you going to do? Because they travel all over the world for competitions. And they said, um, we're not doing school. We're not, you know, we're, we're, they're going to be, our kids are going to be on our hips. We're going to travel the world. And um, I don't know, Mike, have you heard of this thing called Khan Academy? It's pretty cool. And so like, I don't know if you would have that feedback that elite athletes are making that choice to kind of substitute traditional education for, um, you know, for, for your resource. But all that being said is why did you want to go brick and mortar? Yeah. And you know, to that point, look, one of my dreams is Khan Academy, through Khan Academy and other sister organizations and partners, you know, we have another thing called schoolhouse.world, which gives people free tutoring. It's another not-for-profit. But can we create all the pieces where your surfer friend actually can do what they just described, like travel the world, but all of, you know, there, there's essentially the components of school are available on demand in the cloud, so to speak. Um, yeah. So, but, but that I don't think going to be a mainstream use case. And, you know, I'm doing what I'm doing because I want, I want the whole world to change. I want the, the people who have access to school for that school to be that much better and personalized and actually not and for kids not to fall through the cracks and all the associated stress and mental health issues and self-esteem issues. And I also want it, I want Khan Academy and the, the related organizations to be kind of like the shadow school system, the strategic education reserve, the shadow safety net for, for the world where if you don't have school or if your school's crappy, you have, you have a, a, a safety net. But with all of that said, the reason why I want to start a physical school is I, um, I, I wanted to show how these pieces could be put into place holistically to create a new type of schooling. I wrote a book, One World Schoolhouse, back in 2012. The last third of the book was, hey, given what we know about the world and mastery learning and personalization, what should the ideal school look like? And so it's one thing to write about. It's a whole other thing to put it into practice. And my oldest at that time was just, was going to be a rising kindergartner. So I was a little bit, hey, I can't preach all this stuff about mastery learning and personalization and kids being able to plot their own plat, path and have autonomy and then not have my own child do that. And I generally believe it would be better for them. So I wanted my my son to have that and my, all my kids to have that. And so yeah, we, we started a school and I, I've always told the team at the school, I, I, don't, I don't work there day to day, but I'm the chair of the school and it's downstairs from my office is um you know this has a the school has a 
it has a double, you know, when most people talk about double bottom line, they talk about a for-profit bottom line and a social one, but this one has a double social bottom line. Uh, one is obviously you have to serve the students who have, and the families who have, who have had the confidence to try an experimental school. You have to make sure they have a great experience and are prepared for the world, you know, more than any, than most students anywhere. And uh, the second one is we have to show that there's another way of doing things that will over time change the way everyone does things. Uh, so that's what, why we started Khan Lab School. Well, how can people find out about it? Where, where can they go? And you know, where would you want to where would you want to direct people to? Would you want to direct them to the online uh, resource, or would you want to direct them to uh, the in person school right now? Well, everyone should check out the online resources because yeah, that's, how about it's it? accessible and useful for everyone. Most people or their children are going to a traditional school, but to have Khan Academy, to fill in any gaps, to be that on-demand personal tutor. And now we actually offer free tutoring at schoolhouse.world as well. Uh, and the way we do it is we leverage volunteerships, but these are high quality vetted tutors. There's on-demand homework help, live homework help from real human beings on places like schoolhouse.world. I think this is useful for anyone, but obviously this is also useful for people who need to learn whole subjects on their own, people like your surfer friend, homeschoolers, kids who want to do credit recovery, kids, you know, people who are going back to college and forgot some stuff. There's a lot of people in the military using us in that way. Um, but, but you know, what above and beyond that, if people are really interested in, in going a little bit deeper than leveraging Khan Academy and schoolhouse.world, if they don't live in near Mountain View, California, uh, we just started a, a virtual high school in partnership with Arizona State University called the Khan World School. It, it's free actually to anyone in the state of Arizona because it's leveraging uh, Arizona State U University has a uh, online charter. So it's, it's, it's a free school to anyone in Arizona and it is relatively low cost compared to similar alternatives. It's nine, $10,000 a year if you're outside of Arizona uh, to go there. If you live in Mountain View, um, yeah, check out Con Lab School. Uh, you know, and, and this is a small school mm -hmm. where I, yeah. I, it's actually, I, I felt bad because we, we've had to stop, you know, it, it's, Eight years ago, it was a PowerPoint presentation. I was convincing people to come. Now, we're unfortunately, we're turning a lot of people away because we're trying to stay pretty small and, and pretty nimble. But we are trying to share our methods, our processes. There might be more con lab schools in other cities. We're looking at, you know, so if people are listening, want to be that social entrepreneur, want to start either a con lab school or a school based on the similar principles, we'd be happy to talk to you. Sal, I love this conversation. Thank you for what you've uh, created in the world, uh, your commitment to leading with passion and purpose and kindness and benevolence. And I, I think that um, you have made the world a better place. So thank you for, you know, this conversation, what you've done across the planet. No, thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Michael. Yeah. Okay. All the best to you. All right. Thank you so much for diving into another episode of Finding Mastery with us. Our team loves creating this podcast and sharing these conversations with you. We really appreciate you being part of this community. And if you're enjoying the show, the easiest no-cost way to support is to hit the subscribe or follow button wherever you're listening. Also, if you haven't already, please consider dropping us a review on Apple or Spotify. We are incredibly grateful for the support and feedback. If you're looking for even more insights, we have a newsletter we send out every Wednesday. Punch over to findingmastery.com slash newsletter to sign up. This show wouldn't be possible without our sponsors, and we take our recommendations seriously. And the team is very thoughtful about making sure we love and endorse every product you hear on the show. 
If you want to check out any of our sponsor offers you heard about in this episode, you can find those deals at findingmastery.com slash sponsors. And remember, no one does it alone. The door here at Finding Mastery is always open to those looking to explore the edges and the reaches of their potential so that they can help others do the same. So join our community, share your favorite episode with a friend, and let us know how we can continue to show up for you. Lastly, as a quick reminder, information in this podcast and from any material on the Finding Mastery website and social channels is for information purposes only. If you're looking for meaningful support, which we all need, one of the best things you can do is to talk to a licensed professional. So seek assistance from your healthcare providers. Again, a sincere thank you for listening. Until next episode, be well, think well, and keep exploring.